Welcome to episode 45 of Tall Poppy. For our regular listeners, thank you for your patience with the prolonged break. More on that at the end. I'm your host, leadership futurist, Tathra Street. Tall Poppy is about challenging the status quo, sticking our heads up, taking a stand and standing together. This episode highlights collective decision-making and disruptive technology, specifically in relation to democracy. At the moment, it appears rather broken and dysfunctional. My guest predicts that by 2020, people will begin to understand what digital democracy is. He says that the system won't change itself and those in power don't benefit from changes to the current system. Today we hear from Adam Jacoby, Chief Steward of MyVote. He and his tribe and his team are working to disrupt democracy, bringing new technology and a redesign of how we make decisions as groups, as communities, as nations, together. Not just digital democracy, but looking at how it could be, a model that educates, not just improving on how it was. A beautiful example of technology in service of humanity. Adam answers my big questions, and how he responds might surprise you. We discuss succession planning, transparency of political donations, failed initiatives, young people and mentoring, and what it's like to go into a meeting with a former head of state who starts the meeting by saying, hey, I was just looking at your website. My vote is getting more inquiries than it can manage, but they're being strategic about how they support the growth of this digital democracy movement. Listen up. I'd like to welcome Adam Jacoby to Tall Poppy. Welcome, Adam. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are the founder and chief steward of My Vote, is that right? This is all true. <laughs> Excellent. And can you tell me, for those who don't know, um, just say a few words about what My Vote is and where it's come from. Sure. So we've been building our model for about six and a half, seven years now. Um, effectively, we are a redesign of the way that democracy works. So we've started back from first principles and sort of looked at democracy if it were a product, although we're a not-for-profit organisation, and said, you know, if, if it was a pretty product that sat on a shelf in a box, what would it need to do? How would it need to behave for it to actually deliver what its original intention was? And so we redesigned the operating system of democracy. Um, and now we're running independent candidates. We, we built a a blockchain model that underpins the ability for every individual to have votes on every issue and that those votes then decide the behaviours of politicians who are not part of a party but are independents who agree to a set of behaviours that ensure that they're genuinely democratic or as close to genuinely democratic as has ever been. So that's a short spiel. So can you tell me, you talk about not being sort of ideological yet running candidates. How does that work? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, like most uh, democratic innovations, there are a lot of other groups around the world who do this. Um, The idea is that the candidates themselves aren't coming in with a particular ideology. So, you know, we're not left and we're not right. We're actually about a solutions orientation. And democracy demands solutions orientation. We need to be looking for the best solutions for every problem that confronts the community. And then democracy demands that the community decides where we go. Uh, My vote's different um, for a whole variety of reasons, but uh, from a voting mechanism perspective, the reason that we're different is uh, we fundamentally have a belief that you can't have genuine democracy without an informed constituency. So that is, you can't ask people to vote where they want to go if they don't even understand where they are. So we've architected into the, the approach and the model 
a way to make sure people can be informed about the issues. Um, and that, you know, the way we've done that has, has been really well received around the world from some of the most prestigious universities to heads of state, former heads of state, current politicians, business leaders have all looked at this model and said, wow, that's actually a, a really, given the technology that we have today, that's a really good way of ensuring the community can be informed. Um, and then from there, um, it's about not voting on things that create a populist environment. So whilst democracy by its nature is populist because it's about the majority will of the people, what we aim to do is make sure that we're not in a situation where you have the Brexits and the Trumps, which is a, a massively uninformed populist making decisions without really understanding the ramifications of those decisions. So for us, um, you know, we don't have policy unless there's a 60% majority. You can't vote unless you're you've read the minimum amount or consumed the minimum amount of information on all of the choices. We never offer two binary choices, which is, you know, most Western democracies in the world today are left and right. So you can choose this or you can choose that. Um, we always pr provide four choices. We never talk about legislation. We're always talking about destination. So we want a much mm. sort of higher level conversation. Where do we want to go as a country on this issue rather than, you know, do you support the bill, yes or no? Because if you support mm. the bill, yes yeah. and no, and it's a 50.1% majority and people aren't informed, well, welcome to Trumpsville. That's where we are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which is pretty scary. So can I ask... I mean, there's there's a lot of, you know, kind of high-level, really great reasons for this, but what's important to you about creating an alternative to old-school democracy or to disrupting democracy? Um, look, it's an entirely selfish answer. So, I, you know, I was a startup entrepreneur for about 25 years, just under 25 years. I got a little bit sick of continuing to do the same thing and making investors, wealthy investors, wealthier, and I have four children. And so as a parent, as a father, um, you know, you do what you can for your kids, um, to ensure that their life will be as good as it can possibly be. And the reality is we all have different skill sets and, uh, and expertise. And, um, and I decided that I would rather turn the skills that I had developed over a number of years, however good or, or poor they may be, into creating an environment where the voice of my children had a much better chance of being heard and they had a far greater chance of having self-determination. Now, so, you know, wow, it was fantastic. It was a pretty myopic, selfish kind of view at the beginning. I don't think of that as selfish at all. Well, you know, it, it was selfish in terms of I was thinking about my kids. But, but as, you, as the yeah. thing grows seven years later, um, we never could have imagined that we would be sitting where we are at this point. Mm -hmm. And we suspect that 18 will be a, a year that will take us further again. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, you know, as a parent, I mean, I'm a non-parent, but but in, in the sort of ethos of being a parent, it's it's not just your children. It's like, you know, the, the global, the next generation, really. And, and what you're doing is very much about something that is going to create a world of difference to, well, the world, ultimately. Um, and, and speaking of which, when we initially spoke, you were just about to go on a, a big trip um, to a number of different countries, I think it was mostly in Europe. Um, and, you know, I, I remember seeing a few posts saying something along the lines of, uh, you know, that moment when you meet a head of state, and they're like, oh, yeah, I've just been looking at your website. So tell us a little bit about some of the highlights of your recent travels. And, and and what were the heads of states that you that you met or former heads of state? You know, what was that like? Yeah, so, so look, it, it's been an amazing few months. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know, fortunate or unfortunate, depends which way you look at it. Um, I can see both sides of the coin, to be honest. But I, I travel a lot. So for the last probably year, I've been overseas somewhere every month. I'm just about to leave again tomorrow back to Europe. Um, 
and then I'm home for two weeks and then I'm in the States and Canada and various other places uh, for a couple of weeks and then I'm home for a couple of weeks and then I'm in India for a few weeks. Um, it's kind of this endless plane ride. But the last trip we went to, to Davos, we were at the World Economic Forum, which is not something, I, you know, it's not a place I ever expected to be. Hmm. We also didn't really expect to be welcomed with open arms there since our message is really about disempowering the governments um, of the day and redefining their role um, and sort of um, be- becoming the circuit breaker between the erosions in their system and, w- and what we need. So we didn't expect much. We were going there because we were sitting on um, two or three panels in the mm-hmm. around cyber and blockchain and how to create blockchain community engagement and things like that. And I was the judge of um, the United Nations Hackathon, which was the first time they'd done that. Um, Very cool. <laughs> what, what, it, it was that was pretty cool. Um, and and you know some amazing groups had some brilliant ideas and did fantastic work over the period. Um, what ended up happening though was we end, we had a number of meetings that were unplanned, and that sort of came um, just from being in the physical space and being mm-hmm. in proximity of other people. Um, and, and we did. You know, we met a number of heads of state. Um, one of them, as you, as you said, you've recounted the story, uh, just sort of his first approach to me was, oh, you're Adam from my vote. I was just on your website last week, which is fairly What did that feel stiff. like? It, it, you know, uh, disbelief, I guess, is the first thing. Yeah. Um, and, and I kind of looked at my co-founder, Hamish, like, what the fuck did he just say? That was just crazy. Um, <laughs> but but then at the same time, you know, we, we met other heads of uh, other heads of state who um, who knew about us and had seen work. Um, I bumped in. I sat on a panel uh, with a German um, professor who was speaking at the World Economic Forum and said, "Oh, you're Adam from My Vote. I've got a whole slide about My Vote in my presentation." Wow. Um, and so little things like that let us. Well, they did two things. Um, first of all, it, it made us feel much more welcome than we had thought we would be there, um, which isn't important because we're well used to not being welcomed. Um, but at the same time, um, it also, I guess, started us thinking that, in fact, there are two My Votes. And we had for a long time been thinking that My Vote was, um, you know, the world's premier democratic innovation and movement, dem- mm-hmm. democracy movement, that was there to confront and combat and replace governments. But what we're learning is that there are a number of governments around the world who are saying, actually, we want a a better quality democracy. We want to have a better engagement with our community. We do want to serve the people and we want to understand what they want and we'd like to work with MyVo to do that. And so we've kind of, we recognise there are two roles to play. Where governments are genuinely intent on improving their democracy, we will be there to work with them. And those governments, like in Australia, who are not interested, we will absolutely fight. Yeah. I like what you say about, you know, initially it's about disempowering governments, but now you're talking about working with them. And, you know, that that seems like a real shift in, um, you know, almost being kind of activist oriented to, you know, c- coming at activism from a more of a cooperative approach and being welcomed and, and sort of a recognition of the value of, you know, the fact that in many nations in the world, democracy is quite broken. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in every nation in the world, I mean, there is no real democracy. Democracy doesn't exist. It's never existed. Democracy is about enacting the will of the people. You can't enact the people's will if you never ask the mm. people what they want. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I actually want to dive into the, the technology aspect of it. You talk about blockchain for community engagement. Can you tell me a bit more about what that means? 
Yeah, so, so I mean, the way that we have built our system uh, and, you know, those people who are listening who know about my vote also probably know that we spun out Horizon State uh, about eight, nine months ago. And so Jamie Skeller, who's one of the three co-founders of Horizon State, was our original CTO and he built the first blockchain voting app for us, which came out last year uh, and which we've done five or six votes on already. And so for us, you know, it's about, it's about a few things. First and foremost is the capacity to be able to understand what the community wants. And so that's, that's a voting mechanism. Every vote is on the blockchain, so which means it's auditable, uh, it's protectable. At this point, it's unhackable. Um, and so whilst we can't see necessarily how you voted on any particular issue, we can see that you did vote. And if we need to, for auditing's sake, go in and find that vote, we can find the vote itself. The blockchain allows verification because the answer doesn't sit on a single portal. It's, you know, it's decentralized. That's the whole purpose of blockchain. And it provides the anonymity that a lot of people are looking for. Um, from our perspective, we, you know, we're, we're slightly different to the other democratic innovations around the world because, and, and it's also worth saying, I should really add that the community of democratic innovators is, is quite a small community in as much as we all know each other, we've all spoken to each other, um, either we've shared stages or we've shared, you know, uh, lounge room debates. Mm-hmm. We, we all, for the most part, want the same things and want a better quality democracy. We have just a different interpretation about how to bring that about. And there's a lot of sharing of ideas and contacts and resources and stuff because ultimately we don't know which platform is going to be the one that gets the cut through that's required to mm-hmm. make the changes that are needed. Um, and, and we just want to make sure that the change happens. To that end, I would say that we are slightly different, although we want the same things. We're not technologists. So my vote started with a systems architecture approach and everybody else started with a technology approach, oh, okay. which is, you know, I'm, I'm a technologist. I understand coding, blockchain, crypto, decentralization. And so I'm going to apply my expertise to the democratic space. Mm. We say that technology is only an enabler. Um, and in fact, it's the non-technological interventions that we've made into our model that are the things that make it genuinely democratic. The technology itself just helps you have uh, a more voluminous conversation mm. um, and, a, and a more efficient conversation with the constituency that makes people accountable. But it's a whole lot of other behaviours that actually create something closer to genuine democracy. So you say that at this point it's unhackable. Well, blockchain, I mean, because it's sitting on blockchain. Yeah. But, but um, blockchain, I mean, there have been security breaches in, in a number of different, you know, crypto exchanges, etc. So how do you respond to concerns about security? Well, look, I mean, again, from my, from my point of view, all we can do, my vote, the political movement, is use the best practitioners we can find in the technology space to build uh, a very specific set of engagements with the community and security is the foremost concern uh, always because the reality is if it's not protected and it, it, it is hackable, then, then the whole mm-hmm. the whole environment, ecosystem has a problem. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I can't, um, I can't provide you any comfort around the technological piece because I'm not a technologist. But our technologists um, are working on a whole variety of mechanisms at Horizon State and their partnerships with other organisations to make sure that the platform is as secure as it can possibly be. 
you know, I suppose no system's perfect. I mean, the systems that we have currently for democracy certainly aren't. And, but of course, you know, the blockchain is quite new and a lot of people are, you know, especially the concern about the energy, energy intensive nature. Of yeah, it. That, well, that's a whole separate conversation. Absolutely. So well, what, what do you say to that? Again, I mean, I'm not an energy technologist. Some of my closest friends are some of the leading energy technologists in the world, uh, and they are deeply concerned about about how energy-intensive um, crypto is becoming. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't know enough about the space to be able to, to provide you anything that would be coherent and sensible. Um, and yeah, so I'm not going to proffer an opinion that I don't understand. Um, the other thing that. I would say, though, that's very is, unpolitician-like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other thing I would say, though, is that again, the way our model works in terms of the hackability of it, um, one of the protections um, is that again, because we're not asking binary legislative questions that mm-hmm. require a fifty-one percent majority, um, the nature of the hack actually becomes less relevant with us. Okay. So, so as an example, if you're on a different platform, different innovation platform, and you're able to hack that through the blockchain, which I still question whether you could do, if, mm-hmm. but nevertheless, but if you do it, um, the reality is you can actually impact direct policy because what's happening is all you require is a 50.1% majority and whatever is done on that legislative yes, no, do you support the bill, do you not support the bill, will end up being the position of the representative of that movement or that party. From our point of view, because we're asking a destinational question that doesn't relate directly to any piece of policy and because it requires a 60% majority, it's much more difficult to have an impact in what ends up becoming the position because the legislation itself is separate to the question that we're asking. Interesting. So it's, it's a separate level of protection. So what, what I hear and what you're saying is, is that when, when it's quite simplistic, like a yes or no, like should people have marriage equality, there's a, I suppose, a vulnerability where is it, when there's a complexity and you're asking for, you know, should we have uh, a progressive society that, that meets the needs of all? Obviously, you can't just ask a simple question like that. There's a whole range of different questions. So there's a, a, an ability to um, harness the collective rather than go for the, the, the simple answer. Well, yeah, and, and, well, that's exactly right. And so, so, you know, the way that we describe it, it is that there's a complexity in all of these answers. You know, this idea that any one part of politics has all the answers for everything. Yeah, one ideology is, mm-hmm. is perfect. It's just a complete nonsense. Yeah. And so if you accept that there's complexity in the challenges that are before us, um, then you have to accept that there needs to be nuance in the answers. So it can't just be this black and white, well, the liberal way is the way to go or the labour way is the way to go. What if, in fact, you need to bring the labour one a little bit over this way and the liberal one a little bit over this way? And the existing system doesn't allow you to understand the grey in those conversations. What our system does is because we're offering multiple choices and we're not asking you to pick an individual choice, what we're actually saying to you is select any, all or none of these choices that you could live with, that you want your government to use as a priority. Mm. And what then happens is um, you end up building a different kind of consensus. So when we started this, the first conversations I ever had with political professors around the world They all said exactly the same thing to us. They said it is impossible to get a 60% majority in a Western democracy today on any major issue. Don't even bother. Fool's Mm. errand. We've (laughs) done five votes and we've never had less than 60%. And, in fact, the last... So when you say you've done five votes, can you actually explain what that means, like for people who haven't seen your website? Yeah. So in in Australia, we've run five votes where we've put out policy questions 
open them up to the public. Thousands of people have been voting and they, they go through the process. So I'll give you an example. So we had uh, the last vote was the one on energy, uh, energy policy, which has been a big conversation in Australia mm-hmm. for a couple of years now. And if you were to mm-hmm. listen to the two major parties, the government and the opposition, and listen to everybody in the media, the only thing for the last two years we've heard is price to the consumer. You know, everything has to be about price to the consumer because we need to bring your energy prices down, our electricity prices we know are some of the highest in the world. Um, and so that's all the parties are talking about. So we put a vote on energy policy app and the choices were a little bit broader and more destinational than that. So one of them was price to the end user as a priority. The next question was, do you want your government to prioritise environment when it's making its energy choices? Another choice was, do you want your government um, to prioritise the baseload energy requirement for the economy? And then the third one was, do you want to prioritise our international obligations? So four very distinct choices. Mm. All of them are provided with data and research reports and, and documents. You have to read a minimum amount to be able to vote. And if you haven't read the minimum amount of all mm. four choices, your voting like never turns on. We say if you choose not to inform yourself, we choose not to listen oh, to you. Wow. Um, and, but, but you don't have to dig deeper if you don't want to. But if you want to, it, it, so far every vote we've done, we haven't had less than 150 international credible peer-reviewed research reports that are 100% free to anybody who's voting on the platform. And voting on the platform is free as well. So hmm. you can really dig deep. It sounds like you're bringing intelligence to voting. We have to. I mean, if, if the intent is to have a community make decisions about where it goes, the community has to understand the decisions that it's making. And that doesn't... I don't think that is the intent of our current systems. It's not... It's it's more about... Well, I'm not going to go down, down that little rabbit hole, but I don't... When, when I hear you say you have to, I feel like, you know... I don't really think of it in, in terms of obligation or, or whatever, but it's it's when you look at what we're actually doing, it's it's a representation of the values that have set up the initial um, well, no, see, I, I, the initial so system. I would argue. Just hang on a sec, let me finish. So I think initially there was a, a particular set of values, but now that there are advantages to sort of maintaining power in, in certain parts of um, the community – they're hanging on to it rather than allowing for the values of let's, you know, allowed people to actually make decisions that affect them in society. Oh, that I completely agree with 100%. Yeah, cool. So um, I want to skip ahead a little bit. So imagining that a number of countries are beginning to adopt this technology and Australia sees this on the world stage and is starting to consider it, what difference is it going to make in society when we have a new kind of democracy? What, what sort of, what's your vision of how, what kind of impact this is going to create in the world? Well, look, I think, I think any time you, you disrupt any um, ecosystem, uh, the ramifications are broader than the first acupuncture point. So if, if the intent is, first and foremost, to allow every citizen to equally have a say on the policy decisions that affect their lives, what then comes, what ripples out from that is the role of politicians, is the nature of legislation and how we write it and what and mm-hmm. what it looks like. Um, mm-hmm. It changes the nature of the way we have to educate people to be able to engage in that activity, which then impacts um, the role of parties and ideology uh, under our model because, again, we're slightly different. We, we have constitutionally written in 
that we're not allowed to accept any corporate um, money or lobby group money at all, ever, and nor are any of the candidates who run as independents on the MyVote platform. Uh, and so from our point of view, it then starts to impact how donors come into the picture, how lobbyists come into the picture. Um, mm. And so, you know, we've architected a model that everybody will see in the next version of the Horizon State technology that will come out as a MyVote platform in the next few months. Um, you'll see a model that does, it educates, it's a voting platform, it's an AI that scrapes the internet for policy and research papers all over the world on every policy issue. Um, it, it's wow. uh, deliberately architected to address fake news and digital echo chambers. Fantastic. It's touching on a whole variety of erosions to the democratic system. And, mm. and you know, we see lots of versions of democratic innovations that are worthwhile and well thought through and well intentioned. But if you don't go the whole way, all you do is leave the door ajar for the same sorts of erosions to happen again. And so, mm. you know, I've been talking a lot about kind of a new social contract. I'm going to do a video on it later today. Um, and, and I really believe, you know, part of my heart gets warmed when I see, despite the tragedy that had to generate it, um, what's happening in the United States with the next generation mm. standing up and saying, you know what, yeah. not on my watch. You've let us down. You had an opportunity to make this better for us and you're not. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, there is a new social contract that's required in terms Absolutely. of what the world needs to look like going forward and particularly in light of technology's role in where we're going and the scope of mm -hmm. uh, decentralised change as a result of blockchain and cryptocurrency. What we can't do as a generation and the generation after mine because I'm already, you know, middle-aged, um, is... is is allow us to architect a system that will just create the exact same divisions again. It, it'll just be digital divisions. Um, we, we need to think about why these erosions have happened and who benefits from them, and we need to architect now at the front end to ensure they can't happen again. Yeah, I really like what you say about the, the social contract because I, I think that in many ways that's been kind of ignored just completely put to the side. When I when I think about what's possible when this kind of disruption to democracy or sort of reinvention of democracy happens, is that perhaps we might see a, a more like a maturity of ideology and that, that embraces the complexity of what we're aiming for, rather well, and and reenvisions what we're aiming for, rather than it just being a very simplistic. This is the way it is. That sort of ends up a lot of um, disempowered resignation about the way the the way the world is. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I entirely understand why people are, are resigned to it, um, and I understand that there is a, a powerlessness that is architected mm. into the system. Um, but but the reality is that, and, we, and it, I've been a beneficiary of being able to go all around the world and see that you know Australia is not unique in this um, in this concern. Literally everywhere I go, all over the world, people are going. The system doesn't work for me. The system is unfair. Um, you know, why do businesses have an extra voice mm -hmm. rather than individuals? Why, you know, and, and look, I, this is coming from a guy who was a businessman for 24 years. So I I'm not anti-business. I just recognise that everything yeah. has a place. And in a democracy, what you have to have is equality of voice and you have to have a capacity for people to have some control over the conversation. And that doesn't mean that you always get what you want in a democracy. That's not what mm. we're saying. But you have to be asked the question. You have to have a voice. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. But as long as you're there, 
and you're able to be part of the conversation, that's a massive step forward. But one of the things that's critical um, is that we don't we don't think that we don't hope for the change and understand that change is required, but then continue to sit on our hands and do nothing. The system will not change itself because the people who are in power, people who are in power in general, very rarely self-select to disempower themselves. Mm. So the reality is that unless we, the people who are, um, well, I, I use the word, but I don't want it to be as emotive as it's going to sound, we, the people who are being oppressed, um, are able to put pr- enough pressure to change the system, this is the way it's going to stay forever. Yeah, agreed. So what you're say, seeing with Never Never Again movement, what you saw with the Women's March and the Me Too, mm-hmm. this is a group of people, uh, the vast majority of society, standing up and saying, you know what, that's not good enough anymore. Yeah. That's got to change. Yeah. Um, and what we now need to do is rather than do it on an issue-by-issue activism perspective, what we need to do is just build a better bloody system. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that you're doing that. And I want to get into some of the practical ways that that people can engage with what you're doing and hear a little bit about you know some of the projects that are on the horizon or some of the things. Well, can we can we talk about Democratize Me? Tell me a little bit about um, what's happening there. Yeah, look, it was a terrific a terrific idea that it was a massive failure. Um, uh, we we've if we've learned anything over the last seven years, it's that very few people, after hearing how we've built the model, walk away without wanting to be involved, but very few people want to give us money <laughs> right. to help us do it. Um, and when you, when you have a, a constitution that doesn't allow you to accept corporate money or lobby group money, mm-hmm. because we've had lots of approaches from corporations who want to give us money, we have to say thank you but no thank you, um, mm. that becomes a challenge. Now, that's become yeah. less of a challenge since we spun um, Horizon State out because there is a cryptocurrency and we're able to engage in a different form of financial transaction that allows us, from a donation perspective, so Horizon State can donate money to us. Okay. Actually, can you say a little bit more about that? So are you saying that if people have cryptocurrency that they can use that to donate to you? Well, they can, but, but that's actually, as individuals, that's fine. The problem with it is that part of our model is uh, any donation must be transparent in real time. Right. So we need to know who the person is. So we can put their name and the amount of money on the website. So you can see who's donating. Yeah, gotcha. Unlike a lot of politicians where money's going under the mm. table or you don't, you know, they do it through lobbies or they do it through events where, you know, the event makes $300,000 and that event happens to be owned by a company that also happens to be owned by a political party. Um, right. What we're yeah. actually doing is saying anybody who gives us money, whether it's a dollar or a million dollars or a hundred million dollars, you'll know who it is and you'll know how much it is mm. um, because you need to understand who's, who's contributing but also you need to understand that all donations are done through the website. And so there isn't a situation where somebody who donates can then have access to the policy and research teams because that's you don't get to come in and give us a check in the office. That's not the way it works. So that's been an impediment. So we've had a number of people who've come to us, individuals, wealthy individuals, who've said, you know, I'm prepared to give you a check. I want to come in and meet the team. And we've said, no, that's not going to happen. You go on the website like everybody mm. else. You put in a donation, and if you're not prepared mm. to do that, unfortunately, we can't accept your money. Yeah, well, and hopefully they will respect that, given you know what you're what you're on about. Some do, and some don't. You know, and and, and but that's interesting because we're also asking those people to change their behaviours, and their behaviour mm. of those people mm. has been: if I give you a, ch- a large check, part of my reward is I get to come in and meet the people who are going to make the decisions, and maybe give them some ideas about how I'd like to see the world work. We're not interested right. in that. So, yeah. um, you know, how the world will work will be determined by the people. 
um, and, and that's what we're committed to. But in terms of the way Horizon State works, so they have a foundation, a not-for-profit foundation as well. It's been set up under under their creation um, to help grow our movement. So a percentage of what they make comes back to us on a regular basis, which has been terrific for us. Um, and um, and that and that means you know, assuming they keep getting the trajectory that they are, um, the movement should be healthy for a long time. And that's removed a little bit of the fundraising requirement for us, although we're not completely peeling it away, but it certainly was the priority for a long time and it's no longer the priority in terms of how we keep funding ourselves. And so Democratize Me was an attempt at a fundraising yeah. game um, and I think the game is brilliant. I just think as a fundraiser it didn't make a whole lot of sense, which is easy to say in hindsight, but, you know. So can you share with the listeners a little bit about what the the, uh, the, the idea with Democratize Me was about? Yeah, so it was a, it was intended to be a Facebook um, messenger game and the idea is that you could select your friends and it's still up and we're going to, we will relaunch it as a game but just without the, yeah. the financial component, just as a game to play. But um, it was a okay. Facebook messenger game where you could choose to be democratised by your friendship group. So every day they would have a message sent to them on Facebook that would say, you know, how do you want Tathera to, you know, what do you want Tathera to eat for breakfast today? And there'll be four choices and you get to choose and then whatever the majority of your friends want for a week, you have to live your life at the behest of your majority. Yeah. And so you get to play and be controlled by other people. It's really fun. We spoke to <laughs> a, a few celebrities around the world who were interested in playing it, but I think we were, I think ultimately it didn't work for two reasons. I don't think the connection to the fundraising was articulated well enough. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, yeah, and I don't think um, we gave ourselves enough time to launch it properly. So we, we had oh, okay. decided we were going to launch a fundraising campaign at a particular date and then we made it more complex by adding a whole messenger bot that had to be created. And, and I think right. we just tried to do too much too quickly. Um, the idea itself mm. I think is outstanding, but we'll relaunch it uh, in a slightly different way later in the year. Yeah, oh, that's good. Because, um, yeah, as I mentioned, I was engaged with it through someone else I know and was like waiting to be asked to donate because I was like, yeah, this is cool. Of course, my vote's awesome. I want to contribute, but it never came. So I was like, what happened there? But, but you know, so can you say like one or two more things about what you've learned from the process and where to from, from here as far as ways to engage people that want to support what you're doing? Oh, look, absolutely. In terms of the way that people engage with us, um, most of the time, it's a lot of incoming traffic. So they either hear a speech that we give somewhere in the world or a speech that Horizon State gives because they talk about us and we talk about them. Mm-hmm. They see a video that we've been involved with uh, and they come to the website. We have uh, a very large volunteer workforce and it grows regularly. And people come in either saying, I have very specific expertise and I'd love to help you with X, or they come in and say, I don't really know what I could do, but you tell me what you need and I'll see if I can help you with it. And so we've got lots of people all over the world who are doing that. Um, we have people who are trying to come on board now because we're transitioning from a purely or almost completely volunteer workforce to now we're starting to put our first set of hires on. Um, so we've hired a half a dozen um, people in the last three weeks into full-time roles and we'll be hiring another half dozen people in the next few weeks. Um, we're hiring full-time roles um, in chapters in India and in Scotland and in Iowa right at the moment. Iowa. Um, and so, yeah, I, we're really excited about what's happening in America. Um, huh. So I think I think 2020 is going to be the year that people understand what digital democracy is in an American political context. Mm. Um, so, 
So all of that's going on, which is terribly exciting. And then, and then people, you know, the best thing for us is for people to share the information and tell their friends about it and let them know that there's an alternative. Uh, because the more ambassadors we have, um, the bigger the movement grows, the more powerful it becomes. And what I love about how that part of our environment works is, particularly in the last couple of months as we've stood on more stages and very different audiences. So like even if you look in the last few months, um, we did the World's Top 50 Innovators Conference in London, which opened us up to a completely different audience. We then went and spoke at Stanford University, completely different audience. Hmm. We then went to Davos, completely different audience. Yeah, and so, so but what we're already seeing is the type of social influences that are coming out and ambassadors for us um, are really coming from different psychographics and demographics than we've had before. Uh, but equally, you know, without question still, hello, Ruth, um, our biggest Twitter supporter is a, you know, a lady by the name of Ruth in Western Australia who's 80 years old um, and literally mm. all day, every day, just tells everybody to get behind my vote and puts out our content and, um, wow. and, and that surprises a lot of people. Cool. I love that. I'm, I'm interested to, to hear a little bit more about, like, so you're, you're doing some hiring and, and recently posted that you are hiring a CEO and clearly a job unlike any other in the country. And, you know, a lot of our, our listeners um, have either a little bit of a uh, an entrepreneurial bent or are interested in, in things like the dynamic that happens when you start something and then you delegate the top job or the one who delivers on a lot of the, um, the overseeing and that kind of thing. So can you talk a bit about the choice you're making to hire a CEO and from an entrepreneurial perspective, what that's like for you to sort of hand over the reins in a sense? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's probably worth, before I talk about the role itself, mm-hmm. um, I should probably just talk about the philosophy about succession in the organisation. Um, right. So anybody can see this if you go to the website and you, you download the constitution, you can see this. Um, we have fixed terms, even for the founders. Okay. So in, in 2022, my co-founder has to leave. And in 2023, I have to leave. And we're never allowed to come back in any capacity. Cool. So wow. what's important with a system that starts to define the way decisions get legislatively made is that you don't shift one power base, which is the current system, to a different power base, which are just other people who now control how these decisions get made. So we've built mm-hmm. in our own redundancy quite deliberately because this wow. can't be about And so my intent is in 2023, I'm going to disappear off the face of the earth and nobody's ever going to hear from me again. Um, <laughs> Somehow I doubt that. I'm sick of hearing my voice, so you guys must be. Um, but in terms of the role, we, we've always been thinking about trying to find people who are more capable than us. Hamish and I have always had that, that belief. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's been a very deliberate undertaking for the first year and a half of being a formal not-for-profit entity that we've really hand-picked carefully uh, the existing council members, which are, is our board, we call our board our council. Um, and so, you know, Dr. Susan Carland and Holly Ransom and Adam Grenier, who was, you know, formerly the head of marketing innovation at Uber in San Francisco, um, and Martha mm-hmm. Shaughnessy, who was one of the founders of the Women's March, and all these amazing people, we very deliberately found because of their expertise. And now we're shifting that from a board focus to an executive focus. And so the sorts of people that we're hiring um, at the global executive level, so the dozen or so offers that we've made, are world-class practitioners in very specific areas. And now then what comes underneath that are the chapters themselves, so the Indian chapter, the Australian chapter, the Scottish chapter, and who's going to run those. So one of the things we've learned, which was um, probably a mistake early on, 
was to think that because this is an Australian idea and we're Australians and we live here, that we could run both the global focus as well as the local focus at the same time with the same people. Um, I think part of that mistake was that we didn't think globally we'd grow as quickly as we have. But also, I think... Good problem to have, though. Look, it, it's a nice problem to have, but it's a problem, nevertheless. It's a challenge, nevertheless. Um, what we're now doing is committing that, in fact, you know, there's a, there's a... I had this moment, I've told this story a couple of times, so I apologise for anybody who's heard it before, but I had this moment about um, eight or nine months ago where I was, I was lying in bed uh, in the middle of the night and I kind of bolted up and sort of screamed out to my wife, oh, my God, what if it never works in Australia? Um, and, you know, we've, we've been working on this basis that we would seed it in Australia and we'd show how it works as a case study and then we'd take it to the rest of the world if it worked. Um, and then it occurred to me that what if it never works? What if we can make it work in 100 countries before it ever works in Australia? And so that's um, when we started really um, carefully and deliberately going back to the groups of people around the world who had approached us. So at this point, more than 23 countries have come to us to start live chapters around the world. Um, we're not trying to do 23 all at once. It's just impractical and we don't have the resources to do it. Mm. Um, so, so we're carefully handpicking the two, three, four spots where we're going to start. Um, and then we understand what the six-month plan is, the 12-month plan is, the two-year plan is. Um, but what, what becomes clear then is that each chapter needs to stand on its own feet. Um, mm -hmm. And whoever runs Australia needs to make Australia work and they need to understand the Australian political landscape and they need to find a way to get my vote powered independence elected to parliaments so that the people's voice can be heard um, where decisions get made. Um, and so the role is a fabulous one. It's an opportunity to start building that candidacy, uh, preparing for elections, being the brand ambassador and the voice of the movement in this country. Um, and it's something we welcome because God knows we need more than just me out there. Um, and, and, you know, we've had a, a ton of interest in the role. Great. I'm focused on, well, the board is currently looking at uh, the specific scope of the role in detail. Mm. Um, and so we'll have the, for the formal position description completed in the next week or so. Okay. Uh, but, or signed off. Mm -hmm. But um, we have probably 40 people who have already approached us to say, I'm really keen on this role. Great. Uh, and I'm also really keen, actually, to start having conversations with the next generation, the younger generation. Mm -hmm. And I would love, and I, I mean, this isn't a priority, but if we could find, you know, a 23, 24, 25-year-old superstar CEO who can lead generational change into the way that the system works for the people who are most affected by it in the long term, that would make me pretty happy. Mm. Yeah, I love the post that you had up recently on LinkedIn about how you are quite keen to mentor young um, emerging leaders that are all about, you know, systems change and, and well, change makers, really. So can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm driven by by change. That's all my businesses have been about disruption, disrupting industries. Mm -hmm. I'm a father of four, as I said. I, I, I think the capacity of young people is far greater than we give them credit for. I listen to my 11-year-old and my 9-year-old speak and, you know, they're as coherent and intelligent and articulate as anybody I work with. Mm. And I sit down with, you know, politicians and heads of states regularly and <laughs> we disempower people because we say they're not ready. Um, and as somebody who started his first business at 17 and a half, 18, I know that's not the mm. case. Now, I was far from mm. perfect and I made a ton of mistakes, thousands of mistakes. Um, but uh, there was certainly nothing that really stopped me from doing that. So what we're, what we're looking for are, are young leaders who are prepared to learn from people who have been around the block a few times. Um, and we want to mm -hmm. surround 
fantastic, smart, energetic, creative, innovative young people with, you know, wisdom councils who can help them. And so as I was thinking about that from an organisational perspective and watching what's happening with the Never Again movement, uh, I just, you know, I felt the need to say if there are any young people between, you know, up to the age of about 16 to 22 who really intend to become community leaders and, and eventually run for, for politics. And I don't care whether they run for my vote or not, whether they're running for existing parties. Mm-hmm. But if they are serious about systems change for their generation, I will very happily mentor any and all of them as much as my schedule permits. And we've already had a number of kids who have reached out to that. All right. Oh, I love hearing that. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I was really inspired by it and I thought, yeah, that's what I want to do too. And it's been something that, you know, every time I see the failure of leadership, especially on the political stage, it's just like, oh God, you know, well, okay. And yes, I actually have something to contribute to that. Like, I think there's a lot of us out there who feel frustrated by that. And a really perhaps constructive way to address that is by supporting young people who really do want to to make change and to, you know, that, that have that, you know, leadership potential and initiative to actually do something about it and, and want to get some support from from people who, uh, like you say, have been around the block. But I also think there's like a mutuality to it. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but whenever I work with young people or, or have mentored people, I always get a lot out of it as well. And oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Oh, we actually had, we had a fabulous sort of impromptu meeting in our office yesterday where we had a couple of very young volunteers in their very early 20s um, who were sitting in on a conversation about a fairly long-standing challenge within the organisation. And they brought such a brilliant perspective to it that had never been brought to the table for us before. Nice. And, and, you know, by the end of the meeting, we've said to them, okay, you guys run that whole workshop. Nice. You go away and you do the whole thing. And so, you know, those are the things that really excite me. But I also think, you know, the systems, a lot of the systems, and this isn't just the political system, I think this is the way I've seen this in business as well. Um, mm-hmm. I think leadership, the failure of leadership today um, is not to acknowledge that the leader has to have every good idea to be able to, to look around and go, actually, you're a bigger expert than I am at that, or that's not something I understand, so I'm happy to give that to you to make the decisions about, or actually, that's a brilliant idea and I don't need to own that idea. I'm more than happy to give you the credit for having owned that idea. You know, it needs to be a collaborative environment where everybody's headed in the same direction. Mm-hmm. If it needs to be about power and it needs to be about authority and it needs to be about hierarchy, well, then there's, that's a failure right from the outset. Hmm, yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I want to wrap up with a final question that I ask all my guests um, with regard to people who have an initiative, a business, a a book, or some kind of um, you know activist project, change making project, systems change project um, that they want to enact, but recognize they've got both internal and external barriers to deal with. What kind of advice would you have for them? Um, that's a really big question for a last question. Um, from my perspective, there are, there are a few things that are really critically important for leaders in general, particularly people who are trying to create really disruptive change. Um, for me, there are, there are two critical areas. I've talked about this in terms of uh, there being necessary for entrepreneurs, uh, but, but certainly, certainly disruptors, this is critical. You know, the most important thing is self-awareness. Uh, nice. You, you just have to know what you're good at and what you're not good at, and you have to be true to yourself all the time. Because pretending that you can do everything and you can solve every problem is just uh, a recipe for disaster. Uh, you, you just need to be honest with yourself. And also, you need to be able to say, I'm really good at this tiny little thing, but I'm really not that great at all this other stuff. And that's how I am, you know. I'm, I, I often say to my team, 99% of the things I need to do to function as a human being, I am fucking hopeless at. But <laughs> 1%, maybe I'm the best at I don't know. I'm pretty good at it. 
And so I try and stick to those things and find people who are much better than me at the other stuff. Mm. The other thing that I think is critically important is, um, and it's not it's not something you can you can. There's no quantifiable way to know that you're doing it well, but I think it needs to be a focus, which is um, a focus on mastering cognitive dissonance. Ooh. Because startup environments in particular uh, and disruptive environments, the whole nature of the ecosystem is about cognitive dissonance. You are pulled in separate directions all the time, every minute of the day. And unless you have a very clear sense of where you're going and you have a clear sense of when sometimes you need to lean this way and when you need to lean that way, you invariably find yourself heading off course because if you're driven by your personality rather than truth, there's trouble. If you're driven by fact but you don't have any gut instinct, that's a that's a challenge. Mm. And so it's about trying to navigate that high wire all the time yeah. and knowing knowing when to give and when to take. And, and the best entrepreneurs that I've met, some of my closest friends are really spectacular entrepreneurs, they are people who do that really, really well. Mm. Fantastic. What a great answer. I really appreciate that. Um, Adam, is there anything else you want our listeners to know about what you're doing, how to engage with what your, you know, what my vote's about? Any final words for our listeners? Just come to myvote.org.au, read it for yourself. If it resonates with you, if it's something that you think the world needs, reach out. My email is adam at myvote.org.au. By all means, write to me. My Twitter is Adam A. Jacoby. You know, reach out. We're here to help. Great. And I'm, I'll put all of those links in the show notes as well. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Adam Jacoby is a leader that walks the talk. He isn't just saying young people are a future. He's bringing them into the boardroom and wants to hire a young CEO and has publicly stated that he will mentor any young person who's really committed to systems change. I love that he emphasizes self-awareness, saying that it's important to know what you're good at and what you're not to find others who are better than you. I also like his advice about balancing being driven by fact and drawing on intuition. I have a lot of respect for the built-in succession plan and for the way that he answers the questions that he didn't know the answer to. Like when I asked him about the energy-intensive nature of blockchain, he could have waxed on like others might, but no, he acknowledged that it isn't something he knows that much about and that he has people who are working on this and, and that can appreciate the concern. He was transparent, unapologetic, and clear. This approach to redesign of d- democracy is exciting and cause for hope. With heads of state and respected universities like Stanford being drawn to this democracy movement, 23 countries requesting chapters, and being surprisingly overwhelmed by governments who do want to serve the people and engage in dialogue about the erosion of democracy, who benefits from the erosion. Such important questions for any change maker. And to create a model that educates, that intends to bring intelligence to democracy, and brings technology to collective intelligence as the foundation for decision-making for the future. Well, it's pretty compelling. I find it really hopeful. So how do you get involved? If you're in India, Scotland, or Iowa, watch for emerging chapters in your area and get connected to those folks. And of course, go to myvote.org.au. So that's spelled M-I-V-O-T-E dot org dot A-U. Of course, there are links in the show notes via your podcast player or tathrastreet.com forward slash podcast or tathrastreet.com forward slash TP hyphen 45 for this specific episode. And if you're keen to get involved with MyVote, become an ambassador, make a donation, support or become a MyVote backed independent candidate running to represent the people in your community. 
And a final word on Adam Jacoby's tall poppy advice. Two things he said that stood out for me. One was self-awareness and the other is mastering cognitive dissonance. On self-awareness, he noted being true to yourself and knowing what you're good at and getting people that are better than you on your team. This is something you hear a bit about, but with self-imposed limited terms and the succession planning that my vote's got going on, it takes on a different quality. They're really setting the organization up for the future, for it to be sustainable, and they're clearly playing the long game here. And on cognitive dissonance, I liked what he said about the importance of balancing being driven by facts, but also trusting your intuition. What's that like for you? Do you notice a tension there? And many of the skills that he names, of course, are aligned with human-centered leadership, you know, being with uncertainty, resilience, being open-minded, adapting to change. So a huge thanks to Adam Jacoby. He's a very accessible leader. So do email him with questions or just a thank you note for his work. And of course, you can find the links in the show notes. So for my longtime listeners, thank you for your patience. It's been an interesting year, which has meant less focus on Top Poppy. I was tempted to just not say anything or at best minimize the long gap between episodes, but that's not who I am. And any attempt to address this is going to be imperfect. And I accept that. I can never be truly objective about striking a balance between holding myself to account and being gentle with myself through major life events. Adulting. Fun, huh? In the last outro, I mentioned about a shifting belief system, and that's ongoing, but more like a new normal of being with uncertainty and finding a place for healthy doubt and still working out what this means in terms of shifting priorities. So what it comes down to is I've been stuck disconnected from the joy and probably the why. I've been focusing on admin technical tasks, processing the audio, and found that even delegating and outsourcing wasn't effective. Not to say I won't try that again in a different way, but in short, thank you for your patience. I have a handful of great interviews in the pipe, but before I tell you about that, let me share some insights about purpose. Sometimes when you're stuck or blocked in some way, having a whole assemblage of tools that you know to use doesn't always help. I'm really grateful to my friend Philippe Guichard for asking me why and helping me rediscover why I do this. What emerged from this conversation was that I believe humanity is capable of much more than we're doing now. And I think you do too. That's why I do this. It's why I find amazing people to talk with that help us get glimmers of that potential. People pushing the boundaries, challenging the status quo, standing up for what they believe in, standing together. One of my top values is inspiration. And the conversations I have here on Tall Poppy inspire me, and I hope they inspire you. And as we learn from these folks and are inspired to do things differently in work, business, and life, we build a new path. We create what human-centered leadership is about. That's why I do this. And I'll be honest, one of the hardest things about this is not hearing much from you. I've had a handful of people get in touch, including Philippe, Davia, and Morgan, and that's been amazing. Great connections have come from this. So I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you too believe that humans are capable of so much more than this, and that we can take responsibility for creating our common future. What's important to you about that? What are you doing to make a difference, to feed that hunger for something better? What communities feed this hunger for you? What tribes are you connected to that are meaningful for you in this pursuit of creating a better future? 
I've thought about creating a tribe for Tall Poppy, but I feel like there's a lot of stuff existing out there. So I'm curious, what is it for you? I want to know. So get in touch. Use the links in the show notes or leave a comment on the website or on social media or email me directly, poppy at tathrastreet.com. And it's spelt T-A-T-H-R-A-S-T-R-E-E-T. So what's in the pipe? I do have some great interviews coming up around diversity and discrimination, women in power, and what it means to be a good corporate citizen. So stay tuned for those. Thanks for listening, for being the future of leadership, for making choices based on inspiration and not staying stuck. (laughs) Thanks in advance for reaching out, for getting in touch, and for being part of this tall poppy community. See you on the flip side.